Hello and welcome to our second episode of the Brightgen Media podcast series, where I interview leaders within the media industry about their challenges and success stories. I'm your host, Jana Hlistova, and I look after Brightgen's customers in the media industry. Brightgen is a leading Salesforce partner with experts across industry and Salesforce products. We have a particularly strong customer base in the media industry, having served in this space for over 10 years. Our customers include Condé Nast, Springer Nature, Elsevier, and Immediate Media. You can find out more about us on our website, www.brightgen.com. Episode two was recorded at the start of November 2021, and I spoke to Drew Broomhall, who is the chief digital officer of Boat International Media, the market-leading publisher for the Supiot industry. He has worked in digital media since 2002, starting out as a journalist and website editor before focusing on search engine optimization for media companies in 2007 when he joined the Times as search editor. His next role as head of search at Haymarket Media Group expanded to cover data and analytics when he became audience development director for both the Haymarket consumer and business media divisions before joining Vote in 2017 to lead their digital strategy and product development. Boat International Media started publishing in 1983 and now publishes and distributes the Boat International and DocWorg brands in print and digital worldwide. They own and operate the industry's most prestigious awards, the World Super Yacht Awards, alongside several industry conferences. Their main website, BoatInternational.com, is the leading website in their sector delivering content and classified advertising to one million users a month. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Drew, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm an avid consumer of podcasts. So it's a real pleasure to actually be finally invited to speak on one. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I'm excited because we're talking about both international media. We're going to be talking about the super yacht industry, technology and innovation, of course. But before we do that, I'd love it if you could share your background and your journey to where you are today. And I'm also interested to know why work in the media industry? I think it's probably easier if I answer the, the second question first. That probably explains how I ended up in media. I think I, I was always interested in media from quite a, a young age. Um, as, a, as a young boy, I had loads of hobbies. Um, and I used to spend all my pocket money on some magazines for those hobbies. So, you know, I was really into photography. So I used to buy practical photographer and I was really into mountain biking. So I used to buy um, a sort of mountain biking UK, lots and lots of music magazines, you know, NME, Melody Maker, Select, Q, most of which are probably no longer being published. Um, and I just was always drawn towards it. Um, and then when I was in sixth form college, I started a, like a college newspaper and, and ran that for a couple of terms with, uh, with, with some friends of mine. And as soon as I started at university, I started writing for the university newspaper, ended up being a music editor and assistant editor, um, also presented a show on the university radio station and was just always really attracted to it. Um, 
And then I got sort of distracted by music and spent the first five or so years after graduation trying to be a rock star, um, like many people in media. Um, there's quite a lot of us, I think. <laughs> we started out on that route and uh, perhaps didn't quite work out as we planned. And then I got to my mid-twenties and uh, realised it probably wasn't going to happen um, and decided to go back to university to pursue my passion um, for media. Um, and I decided I wanted to do an MA uh, in journalism. Uh, and the options on the table were magazine journalism and a brand new course in online journalism. This was in mm -hmm. 2001. Wow. Um, and I would have had to wait an extra year to get onto the magazine journalism course. And I didn't want to wait an extra year. And everybody in my town at the time seemed to be working for an internet startup. So I kind of thought, I don't really know what online journalism is, but it sounds interesting and it'll get me out of working in a shop and get me on the right path. So I, I signed up and um, you know, within about 12 weeks, I'd written content and built my first website and it kind of went from there. Really. So I moved to London as part of the Masters. I got a, a work placement at the BBC, working on the BBC's World Cup 2002 website. Um, and I also got a placement working for XFM. And as part of that, I ended up uh, getting to do my master's project for XFM and moved down to London in order to do that. And that was it. I was in London and I knew that that was where media, where most media jobs were and where I needed to be. So I've just been here trying to develop my career ever since. That's fantastic. And so you're the chief digital officer at Boat International Media. Can you share what you're responsible for and what you do day to day? It covers uh, a lot of ground. We're a very small business, so it's a very uh, hands-on CDO role. Um, I look after digital strategy, digital product development. Um, I manage the uh, development team and the relationship with our development partner. Um, uh, data, which encompasses CRM data and also uh, analytics, um, sits within my, my remit. Um, and I do an awful lot of work on sort of SEO, which is where really sort of where I went in order to develop my career um, in media. I spent a long time doing an, uh, enterprise SEO for media businesses. So I spent a lot of time working on that, um, digital marketing and um, anything else that, uh, that that I come across on a daily basis. The days are very different. Um, there's, there's an awful lot for us to do in a, in a small business. The focus over the last couple of years has really been around technology replatforming um, and making sure that our technology is really fit for purpose to move forward, um, dealing with a lot of technical debt and, and just getting everything into a, a place that allows us to really grow. We've done that. We actually just relaunched um, our uh, main website a few weeks ago. Um, so probably the next year is going to look very different. Mm. I have seen it and it's really impressive. Thanks. Yeah, it looks really good. We're really happy with it. It really does. I always have a glance um, from time to time and I mean, the boats are absolutely stunning. <laughs> so my five minutes uh, inevitably turns into half an hour. Now, can we talk about uh, the superyacht industry just briefly for, for listeners and, and viewers who aren't familiar with the superyacht industry? 
I mean, what, what is a super yacht? Um, who are the sort of key stakeholders or the market players in this space? You know, how, how big is the market? What's the growth rate? All that. There's a slight difference of opinion in what constitutes a super yacht, depending on who you talk to. We go by the generally recognized legal definition, which is a, a privately owned motor yacht or sailing yacht. Uh, of 24 meters or greater in length, which is uh, 78 feet in old money. Um, there are around about 12 and a half thousand, maybe 13,000 now that have ever been built. Wow. Uh, the fleet that we track um, is around about, I think, six and a half thousand active ones that that we that we can track in action. There may be some more um, as well out there, um, but uh, that's the general size of the fleet. We maintain a global order book um, of the yachts which are under construction. Um, at any given time, usually there's around about 700 to 800 yachts that are actually under construction, and there are around about 300 or so that are, that are delivered um, each year. Um, in terms of um, the, the market, who the major players are, the best builders are mostly Northern European. Um, so the biggest and the best CP yachts are typically built by Dutch yards, German yards, uh, Italian yards. Um, there's a, a huge growth in the Turkish market at the moment, lots and lots of Turkish builders building high quality vessels and, uh, and also um, a lot really coming from further east as well now. Um, the main market is actually America, so about 50 something percent um, of owners um, are American. Um, so that's the largest market by far, um, and then it's then um, sort of dispersed across uh, across the world. And you've seen a lot of growth in the market, am I right, um, as a result of the pandemic? Sales in the, the brokerage side of the market, so the buying and selling of, of pre-owned super yachts, really took off um, in two, sort of midway through 2020, so we, we saw a a real big um, spike in activity and that has carried on um, through this year. Uh, so we've been tracking super yacht sales since 2010 mm -hmm. um, and as of this morning uh, we tracked 578 sales this year which is 140 um, more than the previous best year that we tracked which just goes to show what a, what a boom market it is right now. Um, yeah. And that is also carrying through to new build as well. And we're getting reports from builders that their order books, which are the, the number of yachts that they are um, building, having already been ordered rather than speculation, um, are also at record highs. Now, I'm going to switch gears now and talk about uh, both international media in a little bit more detail. Um, I'm very interested in you giving us a brief overview of Boat International Media. I really like your slogan as well, Drew. Uh, you're the global authority of super yachting. So as a media, how do you become the global authority of super yachting? We've been doing it quite a long time. Uh, I think we started publishing Boat International magazine 37 or 38 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we've built up a reputation uh, over time as um, the the publication that, that probably was most consumer focused um, and 
did the best job of showcasing these absolutely incredible vessels. Mm. Um, and over time, we've just built up that reputation. We have an amazing network of contributors um, all over the world. Um, we have some of the, the world's foremost yacht spotters helping us collect you know, data about super yachts. We've got amazing writers and access to amazing photographers. Mm. Um, we've built up market share through a bit of acquisition as well. Um, so we, many years ago, we purchased the largest super yacht magazine um, in the USA, which was called Showboats at the time. Um, that has since been rebranded as Boat International US edition. So we published two editions of the magazine. We have what we call the, the global edition, um, which is uh, the, the one that uh, reaches the UK newsstand and most other parts of the world. And then we have a, a slightly different version because the, Amer of the American market is slightly different and their preferences towards slightly different builders. Um, so we have a, a, a proposition for, for them as well. Um, and then we've also built up other publications. So we have a, a publication targeting super yacht captains and crew called Dockwalk, um, and also um, its um, website, dockwalk.com. So we've really tried to build a portfolio of products um, uh, that serves the, the entire super yacht industry. Uh, it's servicing the, the owners primarily um, and is really aimed as a, as a B2C magazine, um, but it has a huge B2B um, core market um, in terms of the, the people who, who read it. And we've also tried to expand into, into other areas such as such as CPR crew. Um, in terms of digital, I think we really started pushing digital kind of hard in about 2012. Uh, I joined in 2017. Um, and since then, we've seen absolutely massive growth. Um, in our digital platform. Um, and uh, it's very seasonal traffic. Um, traffic peaks in the summer months when everybody's out and about yacht spotting in the Mediterranean, and that builds up a, an awful lot of traffic. In that peak season, we're now up to a million visitors a month, which is uh, quite incredible for you know what is a, a, you know, a very niche industry. Yeah, that's very impressive. And what is your business model or, or business models, I guess? Where, where does most of your revenue come from? Unlike a lot of publishers, we're, we're still um, primarily print revenue, mm -hmm. um, largely as a consequence of the fact that the magazine really is um, incredible. You know, every issue is, is beautiful. It's, a, mm -hmm. you know, it's very much a, a coffee table magazine. Um, we have very, very... Um, high design standards and an incredible creative director who, who you know makes every every issue something special, um, and that's allowed us to really kind of maintain that marketing market leading um, position and make sure that um, you know, we are the destination of choice if anyone wants to advertise their their, their products. So that's allowed us to really kind of hold on to print revenues in a way that a lot of other publishers um, haven't. Um, and that's really proven by the size of our, our magazine, you know, which can still, you know, frequently top 350 pages. Digital has become uh, a, a much larger part of um, part of the business um, over time, and is growing at a, at a very, very good rate. Again, that's primarily advertising, um, both display advertising and also um, classified listings. And then more recently, we've been branching out into uh, our market intelligence solutions, which is our, our Boat Pro product. Um, and then events is still a huge part of our business as well. Um, you know, we, we operate both awards um, and also 
symposium type events. Uh, we operate what is generally acknowledged as the Oscars of our industry, which is called the World Superyacht Awards, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a massive event for us. Um, and we also operate our, our other events, which is the Superyacht Design Festival, which are a little bit more B2B in their focus. It's very exciting. And, and uh, it was going to be one of my um, questions, actually, to, to ask you uh, about sort of your, your events, your live in-person events uh, in Monaco, uh, because it's interesting, you're, you're one of the media companies that has reintroduced live in-person events. And I'm quite curious to know how that's gone. It went very well. Um, we were able to do the World Superiot Awards um, this year. It was certainly a logistical challenge uh, and we had to adjust the event accordingly so it was a smaller event um, than uh, than normal uh, in order to make sure that it was covid safe and that we had the correct protocols in place unfortunately i didn't get to go to monaco so i can't tell you how it was on the day but um, it was very well received it's an industry that's really built around face-to-face relationships you know, there's a very vibrant events calendar above and beyond what we do in super yachting. You know, a large amount of it gravitates around the yacht shows. So you've got in the US, you've got Palm Beach in the spring. Um, you've got Fort Lauderdale um, in the in the, the autumn, um, and then you've obviously got Monaco and Cannes um, in uh, in, in uh, sort of September as well um, in France. So. You know, it's an industry that's really built around that, and we've really kind of organised our, our calendar around that calendar. Um, and there was a real desire for people to actually get back to that kind of you know face-to-face interaction. And so we've done what we uh, done what we can, and hopefully next year we'll be able to do a little bit more. Now I want to jump back to uh, my questions about the business model revenue. I'm interested to know what's more important from your perspective if we think about subscriptions or ad sales in your business right now and perhaps even looking further ahead um, and and why i think for print uh advertising is still um the the most uh, important revenue stream uh, and will continue to to be so really just because of the nature of of the product um Mm -hmm. and the fact that it's not a massive audience that we're trying to reach. It's a very targeted audience. We're trying to make sure that we get magazines to the, the, the right people. Um, digital is is interesting because you know we're trying to to grow in all areas. Like most publishers, we've we've realised that there's no one magic bullet in terms of revenue. You know, we have to be pulling a lot of levers and be pulling them all, you know, kind of at the right times in order to, to kind of get the kind of growth that we're after. Um, so advertising is absolutely um, a critical thing for us. Um, classifieds is a, a critical thing. But increasingly, uh, things like Boat Pro are a massive uh, opportunity for us. Um, so there we built a subscriptions product uh, really from nothing. Um, it, it was you know, an MVP that we built for literally for nothing, just to see whether people might pay for data that they were getting for free on the website before. We just put a paywall around it to see what happened. People started giving us money for it, and we kind of thought, okay, we can develop this and turn this into a into a real business. 
um, and you know four years later um, it's now uh, it's now a product where we're charging I think ten times as much for a subscription as when we started. Um, we're selling multi-seat subscriptions, and it's become you know, a real success story for us. Um, and uh, we we see those kind of products very much as 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 part of the mix. You know that they're um, they're high margin for us. They have a huge amount of loyalty once people are using them. That that they they really like them, and we see that uh, that, that they will be a, a real critical part of our, our strategy moving forward. So we're really kind of thinking about. What would we need for B to C, which is really all the advertising, but then also really starting to build out a portfolio of digital products um, for the, the B2B side of our markets as well. Yeah, which which leads on wonderfully to my next question around the fact that you target B2C and, and B2B customers. Um, and it would be great if you could describe your audience or customers on either side. What we discovered was... Once we started digging into the data, we realized there was a, a massive crossover between what you might call B2C and B2B audience in a way that doesn't often happen with a, a lot of media businesses. And I think it's really a consequence of the fact that super yachting is quite a rarefied industry. There are only a, a, a select number of people who can afford a, a super yacht. So we are from a pure consumer perspective, in terms of the people who might buy super yachts, we're really addressing quite a, a small demographic. But there's this huge industry that's built up uh, around trying to um, service super yachts in terms of selling the super yachts, getting equipment on board, maintaining and, all, and crew and all, all the other things. And they are also deeply passionate about super yachting um, and also therefore really consumers of our content and also consumers and purchasers of, of our products. So we saw a real overlap between the two and a large amount of what we've been trying to do uh, in terms of um, data strategy and what we're trying to put in place uh, in terms of technology is really making sure that we can understand the relationship between them. So clearly we have a demographic of owners um, and aspiring owners that we're targeting. We also have an audience of enthusiasts who love super yachts, maybe have a smaller boat, um, but will probably not get to the point of being able to afford a super yacht, but are still very, very deeply passionate about them. And that's what we'd call our consumer audience. And then in terms of the B2B side, it's the people working for the super yacht builders the brokerages, the ancillary services, um, and the and the crew, um, and then financial services and various other um, segments, which uh, which are all uh, involved in the superyacht industry in some way. And of course, the products and services that you offer to each are different. Absolutely, yes. So um, we have um, obviously the the magazines, um, really more focused towards the. Uh, the, the consumer um, end of the market, um, Boat Pro conversely is really just a, a pure, you know, a B two B product. Um, there's a bit of crossover things like books, so we we publish some lovely coffee table books which are which are consumed by 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 both. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a it is a real mixture, and we're going to be doing a lot of work um, to try and 
segment um, those audiences a little bit better and be even more focused in, in the products than in, in making sure that we're promoting the right products to the right people. Okay, that's that's wonderful. Very, very interesting. Now, I'd like to talk about technology, um, and I'm interested in how you're having to evolve your technology infrastructure and systems to keep up with growing demand from the market. And then I have a slightly cheeky question, and I'm curious, <laughs> which is why I've added it here. Do you ever think you may become more of a technology company? We've already become more of a technology company since I joined. Um, I think is is the answer to that. Um, when we built Boat Pro, uh, we decided very early on that we were going to build it ourselves. Um, we have a, a partner that we work with, but a large amount of it um, was was done um, in house. Um, really, because we we looked at off the shelf. BI products that might allow us to white label a product. Um, we felt that our, our data was so different and what we wanted to do with the data in terms of how we wanted to visualize it and present it required a, a, a custom treatment. Um, so we decided to build it out ourselves. That means that also we own the IP of that, which obviously has an intrinsic value for, for the business. Um, so we decided to go down that route, and we now um, we now own our own technology platform, um, and uh, we can develop on that as as we see fit. In terms of technology strategy um, and systems, what we've been trying to do is really simplify our world as much as possible. When I joined the company, I did a technology audit. I was I was thinking to myself, GDPR was looming in 2017. Mm. I could see it on the horizon, so I did the technology audit, and I found that we had customer data in 16 different systems, oh, wow. many of which were overlapping. I think we had four different systems alone selling events tickets. Yes. And this is a very, very common story amongst a lot of publishers. We acquire point solutions over time because somebody's got a problem they want to fix uh, and we don't always think about the long-term implications and it was very clear from what i saw that, that that's what had happened in our business so we went on a, a massive program of consolidation and simplification just trying to remove as many of those systems as possible and try to, to get the data out of whatever silo it, it was and into and into one system. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a constant and ongoing battle in any business, I think, because you always get you know, new marketing tools that you want to implement and they end up throwing off data. So um, I wouldn't say it's a done job by any stretch of the imagination, but we're certainly in a far better um, position than we were in, uh, in 2017. We now have far fewer systems. And what we've tried to do is make sure that those systems play nicely with each other and integrate well with each other as much as possible. So whenever we do something like integrating events management software, um, the integration part of, you know, will it integrate with Salesforce? Will it integrate with our ESP? 
all of that becomes a, a really major part of the vendor selection process for us, and we're, we're quite rigorous on that. Um, I think when we actually did the vendor selection for that, we were told by the winning vendor that they'd never been grilled to that extent. Um, and we were really pleased by that because it meant we were asking the right questions and making sure that we got something that actually um, did give us the data in the right way and didn't create a headache later on. So just by applying those principles, I think we're, we're moving towards a, you know, a stack that's better integrated um, and uh, will allow us to be able to do more of the things we want to do from, a, from certainly from a marketing perspective um, over the next few years. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think you're certainly moving in lightning speed, Drew. So really good to hear. Now, I'd, I'd like to talk about data. We've touched upon this already, um, but I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you think about data and also your data strategy going forward. How we think about data is probably really as a consequence of what I was talking about in, in terms of um, our, the crossover in our audience and also simplification. So once we looked at the data, we could see that there was so much overlap um, between the data that we held in different systems that we really want to try and consolidate that as much as possible and get to you know, the fabled single customer view that every you know, every publisher wants. Um, so we've been really pushing hard on trying to to, to get that uh, to, to get that consolidated as much as possible. What we're making a big push on at the moment, like a great many publishers, um, is first-party data, um, and trying to augment what we've collected over time through both your newsletter registration um, and uh, and uh, an event attendance um, and a lot of you know face-to-face -face activity, is really trying to develop um, a first-party data strategy, um, and that's an interesting challenge when you don't have a subscription product, a subscription content product. So Boat Pro is a market intelligence platform, but it's data driven, it's not editorial content driven. And we didn't really see the space in our market, certainly at that, the time we were doing it, to develop a, a paid subscription product. So what we started out with this year um, was a data wall product. Uh, so we launched a, a section of the, of the website called Boat Business. Um, we hired a, an excellent um, B2B editor to uh, cover uh, the, uh, the stories that we haven't really covered before because BoatInternational.com is very much more of a consumer proposition. Um, and we did it as a data wall rather than a, a paywall because we saw the intrinsic value in collecting the, the data and asking customers to tell us a little bit more about themselves. And it's really exceeded our expectations so far. You know, we've, we've had a couple of thousand registrations already, which is quite a lot for a, a small industry like ours. And it's given us a real confidence that we can definitely do more in that area. Um, so we're looking very closely at how we uh, expand that and try and uh, build up a, a larger pool of first-party data, asking customers to tell us more about themselves um, in order for us to be able just to understand the content that they're consuming um, in a little bit of a better way, improve the marketing that we're offering, um, and obviously there will be a, a tangible 
commercial benefit um, to that first party data, um, which we see really as a, as a major commercial pillar for developing our digital advertising propositions uh, in 2022 and beyond. Yeah, yeah, as you say, it's, it's fundamental, isn't it? Uh, really important to put data in the in the center of your business. Now, I'm curious how Salesforce CRM and Marketing Cloud are a key part of that. You've you've talked about CRM and Salesforce briefly, um, but if there's any any more information you'd like to share about that, that'd be great. It's playing a, a big and in, an increasing part in our business at the moment. Uh, we wanted a tight integration between our CRM and our ESP. Um, so we made the uh, decision um, some time ago to invest in, in Marketing Cloud, having been a customer of Sales Cloud um, for some years. Um, and it, it's working very, very well for us in that, again, in terms of just simplifying our lives, you know, because we can push um, data from uh, Sales Cloud into um, into Marketing Cloud um, efficiently without any need to do any ETL work or API work. It just works for us. Um, it's made the, the process, making the process of segmenting and activating data um, that much that much simpler. So really we're seeing Salesforce, what we're doing with Salesforce is really developing it um, from really having been a sales focused um, tool, um, really to support our advertising business, to making it more of a, an overall um, you know, business information system for the whole business is beginning to take on far greater importance in terms of things like reporting as well. Um, so we're really trying to to maximise the uh, you know the, the investment that we've put into uh, into both of them, and uh, you know, we're looking to accelerate that very hard next year. Fantastic. Now, Drew, there's a lot of focus on media companies needing to build personalized digital experiences, which we've touched upon. Um, there's a lot of focus on building communities. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, how do media businesses need to do that and maybe do that more successfully? Because as we know, uh, customers, online users can become and should become brand ambassadors and it's that loyalty uh, that builds brand equity, which is just so valuable to media companies. So I'm, I'm interested in your in your view on that. The interesting thing for for me is that everybody recognises that personalisation um, is a major key to success in in digital, um, and publishers absolutely recognise that. Um, but when often when they start thinking about personalization, it's not in the same way that um, a, a, a non-publishing business, another kind of media business would, would think. The example I always think of is, is Netflix, you know, who are you know, quite famous for you know, having essentially crowdsourced a, a personalized recommendations algorithm you know, and, and given a reward to the, you know, the, the best one. Um, because they wanted an algorithm that worked for them and they wanted to own that and they wanted to develop that. So it became something that was intrinsic to their business and, and part of uh, and, and a key part of the offering. Most publishers don't have the capability to offer that. Machine learning models are 
complex to build, quite time consuming. You need, you know, quite, you know, kind of sophisticated skills in order to be able to develop them. So what I see is that many publishers end up looking at personalization very much as another point solution. Well, they maybe look at it as something that is designed to solve just one particular problem, but maybe not looking at the entire piece. So you might look at it and say, we want personalization because we want to drive more page views. And so you look at some media sites and they are using personalization widgets, which are there to build up a profile of a user and try to drive an additional page view. But that data then becomes yet another silo and is not integrated with, with other systems. Some publishers have moved towards more full stack solutions, which will allow personalization across email, uh, across, um, uh, across content recommendations, and also things like product offers as well. Um, but I think that space is really kind of being led by software vendors at the moment, precisely because of the challenges that publishers have in finding the staff and the resource to be able to uh, to be able to do it so i think to answer the, the question it's really a case of deciding what you need your personalization for um, and then looking at uh, which of the many solutions that are out there you know from cdps um, through to you know more standard marketing clouds um, actually you know, fit those use cases and will allow you to deliver as many of those things as possible while keeping that data as tightly integrated with your other systems and as usable with those other systems as possible. You know, you don't want a, a profile of a user that's being used to recommend content and not be able to use that in email, for example. That's slightly defeating the purpose. So thinking in that way is perhaps the key towards moving to a more holistic view of personalization for publishers. Mm, I like that. A more holistic view of personalization. I think that's a great summary. Um, really great advice, Drew. Now, I'd like to look uh, a little bit further ahead, and I'm quite interested uh, to hear about some of the key projects or initiatives in both uh, international media that you're focusing on in the next 12 months. You've perhaps covered some of that already, um, but if there's anything else you'd like to add. I touched on what we've been doing with boat business um, and the fact that we really want to develop that. So I think a key thing for us digitally is, is going to be developing um, the, the first party customer data relationship. Um, we're at a point now because we've done so much over the last two years, you know, we've replatformed in, in the last 16 months. We've replatformed both international to a new platform, and then we've recently redesigned it. In the meantime, we relaunched DocWalk.com and replatformed that. Um, we've also um, done put a, a huge investment more into Salesforce and, and developing that out. Um, so we're at a point now where we're almost looking at it and saying, okay, well, we're, we're really happy with what we built. We, we love the new website. We think it's fantastic. It's a, it's, it's a great looking platform and a great performing platform. So we're, we're generally happy with our product portfolio and it's now a question of just trying to do everything that much better. You know, we really see uh, that the next year, possibly two years, as really a, 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 an opportunity for 
just optimizing everything that we've done so far and trying to get as much out of it as we as we possibly can. Um, and we we can see that there are massive gains just by just by doing that without needing to really introduce too much more into our business. It's just can we do it even even better, which is an interesting challenge because we're already the market leader. Um, so you know we 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 we're in a we know that we're in a good position in our market, but really we're kind of driven by very high standards in our business as anyone who ever looks at a copy of our magazine will, will attest, you know, it's, it's an incredible product. And, and, you know, really what we're obsessing about at the moment is making sure that everything we do from a digital perspective, you know, is done to absolutely that incredible, um, you know, level of level of quality. And we see that there are massive advantages to to doing that. So I can't really be any more specific than that. I just say, you know, do what we're doing, but get an extra twenty percent out of it, and we'll be you know, we'll be in in very very good position. Yeah. Well, you've laid down the foundations. You know, you've got all of that right, and now it's tweaking, and as you say, just just making it that bit better. The next question is possibly drilling a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper. But what, what does success ultimately look like for both international media over the next few years? Um, or if you want to answer that question, Drew, from your personal perspective um, as well. I think success for us will be um, building on the digital portfolio um, and uh, making sure that um, we are able to um, take and maintain a market leading position um, in, in, in digital um, for the future. Um, so we're very, very fortunate that we've got this fantastic magazine and we've got this fantastic events business and we've got the, the largest website in, in, in market. Um, but we, we still need to keep pushing and keep growing and certainly we, we need to Certainly, scale up and develop our digital revenue streams even even further. Um, so, I would say, for us, you know, developing a, a both a greater share of revenues from digital, but also um, you know, really really driving that to a comparable number to what we're getting from from print is really uh, what we're after and what we're gunning for as a business. Drew, you've shared so much uh, with us today. Um, there's so much food for thought uh, in everything that you have said. I have my final question uh, for you now, which is about innovation. Uh, how do you expect to continue to innovate over time? We know the media industry, uh, the publishing industry is extremely competitive. Um, you know, technology is very disruptive. There's lots of change uh, ahead. How do you make sure, or how will you make sure that you continue to innovate and continue to be market leaders? Yeah, so it's a good question. Without wanting to be too cliched about it, the key is really always listening to your customers and, and interpreting what they what they need. Um, and finding a, a solution to that problem. If we think about what we've innovated over, over the last few years and how we got there, you know, if we look at the example of, of Boat Pro, how did that start? That started by making sure that we were tracking every activity that happened on our website 
And we just did that for three months just to see what happened. It was the first thing I did when I joined, was get everything tracked. And from that, we saw that people were coming and downloading the PDFs of uh, yacht data, yacht sales data, um, and uh, the order book that we had on the website, which we were giving away for free. And that gave us the idea that you know, possibly there was a there was a revenue stream there. Um, and by taking a, a very strict MVP approach, we were able to, to prove that out and develop it. But if we look at then how we iterated that and, and drove it to be a more valuable product, um, you know, how do we get to that 10 times subscription value? It was really by listening to the customers. So you know, the, the transitional point for me was going to Fort Lauderdale um, and doing a presentation about the product um, to the market and having five conversations in a row with potential customers who all told me similar versions of the same problem, which is that they were struggling to get accurate data on the locations of super yachts because the commercial platforms were very focused on commercial shipping and weren't effectively tracking super yachting, which is a very much more specialized and slightly more secretive market. And once I'd heard that five times, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe there's something in this. Yeah. So we went away and we started prototyping it and we and we built it and that was that was the one thing that that really you know, took it from you know an interesting product to an absolutely essential product um, for a lot of people. So it's got to be that 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 listening. You know, we we are investing more actually than ever before in customer surveys, um, in user research. Um, in UX as well, um, and making sure that we are having those face-to-face -face conversations. You know, that's why events and being out there in the market, talking to our customers is, is so mission critical. So that's the only thing we can do in order to be able to look ahead and anticipate their needs and be able to develop products for them. So that's mm. what we're going to keep on doing. Thanks very much to Drew Broomhall, Chief Digital Officer at Boat International, for telling us about the niche industry of super yachting and how traditional media can combine seamlessly with the modern. Join us again soon for our next episode of the Bright Gen Media Podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast and do follow us on social media. And you can also visit us at www.brightgen.com. Until next time, goodbye.